Luke 13, 10 through 21. Now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And behold, there was a woman who had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight, and she glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, There are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed, and not on the Sabbath day. Then the Lord answered him, You hypocrites! Does not each of you on the Sabbath day untie his ox or his donkey from the manger, from, from the manger and lead it away to water it? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for eighteen years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? As he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame, and all the people rejoiced at the glorious things that were done by him. He said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like, and to what shall I compare it? It is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air made nests in his branches. And again he said, To what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like the leaven that a woman took and hidden three measures of flour until it was all leavened. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray with me. Father, thank you for again coming under the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, today, today's main message that he wants to get across is the power of the kingdom of God through the power of the king, King Jesus So Lord, I pray that every single individual in this room experiences your power this morning. And Lord, what we have not, I pray that you would give us. Lord, what we know not, I pray that you would teach us. And Lord, what we are not, I pray you would make us. Informed by your word, empowered by your spirit, and encouraged in community. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You guys go ahead and have a seat. Well, this Thursday, this past week, this last Thursday, I had a meeting in Berthoud. So I was driving to Berthoud on a 287. It was early in the morning. The sun just came up, and I looked to the west, and I saw one of my favorite scenes in Colorado. The white snow-packed peaks of the mountains next to the blue backdrop of the sky. And the mountains just popped. And I was just like, man, and it just caused my heart to worship. And I was reminded of Psalm 19 that the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. And it just got me thinking, like, what is the most powerful, grandiose thing that we come in contact with every single day? Then my eyes turned to the east and what did I what did I behold? The sun. So I had this perfect contrast of God's creation, God's power in creation, the mountains, the blue sky, the sun. And I started thinking about the sun, so I did a little little research on the, the power of the sun this past week. The sun is the only star in our solar system, and it's the closest one to earth. You know how close it is to us? It's 93 million miles away from us. And that's just one star of 100 billion in the Milky Way galaxy. Now, we all know that the sun is hot, right? It's like 10,000 degrees Fahrenheit. That's like Arizona hot. Like, I grew up in Arizona. That's like Arizona hot, right? It's just hot. You can almost fit 
one million Earths inside of the sun. If, if, if the Earth, if I had a golf ball, say this is a golf ball, and it was the Earth compared to the size of the sun, it would be, the sun would be two and a half times bigger than me compared to the Earth. I mean, we think it's massive, it's powerful, it's unbelievable, the, the energy and the force that it has in it. And yet, it's a small star, comparatively. The biggest star that we know of is Kansas Majoris. This thing is massive. It's the largest star that we know of. If the Earth, if it's their Earth, that it circles, were a golf ball, Canis Majoris would be the size of Mount Everest, comparatively. Just think about that. Long's Peak is 14,200 feet. Mount Everest is 29,000 feet. It's twice the size of Long's Peak. That's how big that star is. You could fit, if the, um, you could fit seven quadrillion Earths inside this star. I mean, I don't even have a category to that for that size. Do you? Let me just help you break it down a little bit. That's enough Earths if the Earth was a golf ball to cover the entire state of Texas in golf balls 22 inches deep. It's a massive star. Another verse popped in my mind. Psalm 33 says this, By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. By God's word... Cole opened up. And we didn't plan this. Cole opened up with Colossians and everything came through the creation of Jesus Christ and Him speaking. This universe came into existence. Imagine having that kind of power that you speak and Candace Majoris pops up. The universe, the sun, the earth, you and me. I was overwhelmed by the power of God. And it caused me to worship. When was the last time you were overwhelmed by the sheer power of the Lord in your life? That you, it, just, it just caused you to pause and glorify Him in worship. Just bow down, fall to your knees and worship the King of kings and the Lord of lords. You know, today I think daily we forget about we live in the kingdom of God. We have a king that has, again, that kind of power. We get, we get caught up in our own little kingdoms, don't we? We get caught up in our own little kingdoms, and man, the, our own little kingdoms can own our minds. It could tie us up in knots real quick, can it? Missing the fact that we are part and we serve a king that with one word can untie all those knots easy. We can be distracted by the desires of the flesh. The lust of the eyes, the pride of our possessions. It could, could knock us off track. So this morning, Jesus is calling you and me to recalibrate our hearts and our minds. Uh, to, to refocus on the kingdom of God and the power of the king who rules that kingdom. And as we do that, then we can now walk as the citizens of heaven and the ambassadors we are called to be each and every day in all the circles of our influence where we live, work, and play. That's what we're going to talk about this morning. And first, we see the compassion of the kingdom of God in Luke 13, 10 through 13. Look at verse 10. Now he, Jesus, 
was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. Now, when you read that line, you should think immediately like, uh-oh, Jesus in the synagogues is teaching. You know, that, that, that usually doesn't go good as we've been going through the Gospels, as you know. And then it says, verse 11, And behold, there was a woman who had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and she could not fully straighten herself. So here's Jesus. It's the Sabbath, it's Sunday. He, remember, he's working away from the North Galilee. He's working his way to Jerusalem. It's Sunday, so what does Jesus do? It's like, it's Sunday, I need to go to worship. So he goes to the synagogue back then. It would be like today's modern day church. And he ends up being a teacher. So he's teaching. And as he is teaching, all of a sudden, a woman walks through the doors. She's a little bit late. But what's impressive is she's still coming to church after 18 years of being bent over and having this disability, this disabling disease. Now she's a little late. She's on crossing time, right? That's like many of you guys out there. Crossing time. Show up a little late. And who can blame her? She didn't have cars back then. Wherever she had to go, she had to walk. So it took her some while. So she walks in the door and Jesus sees her. Again, this woman seemed to have some sort of degenerative spinal condition that caused her to be bent over for 18 straight years. And yet she's still showing up to church to worship. Notice the Duke, Luke, the doctor, gives us a diagnosis to this woman's back. There's a physical condition. Obviously, she's bent over. Something's wrong with her back. But it seems secondary to the cause of her condition. He points out the cause of her condition to who? To Satan. She is bound by Satan, it says in verse 16. And it's literally, the definite article there is for Satan. It's the Satan. So Satan himself has bound this woman. He has used kind of the the natural um, physical elements of this world to disable her. And now when we think of evil today, we typically think of it in two categories. We think of it in human evil. Human evil would be us sinning. We would steal. We would kill. We would human traffic, you know, etc. So evil caused by humans. That's one way we think about it. The other category is through natural evil. Right? Natural evil. Things that happen in this world because we live in a Genesis 3 world. The, the creation is fallen. Sin affects the creation. So we have hurricanes. We have tornadoes. We have droughts. So we have human evil, the evil that we do. And we have natural evil. But there's a third evil that we need to probably ponder a little bit more than we do. And when we read passages like this, this is just Jesus reminding us of that third evil. It's spiritual evil. It's the evil that comes from the enemy, Satan, and his demons. It's a spiritual evil. We have to remember that we're more than physical creatures. God has created us, and He's created us physically with bodies and blood and bones. But He's also created us spiritually with a soul. So we're not only physical creatures, we are spiritual creatures. And we have to live in the reality of both those worlds. But too often, in our modern thinking, we just live through that one reality, through the physical. So we kind of attribute everything that happens evil-wise to either humans or nature. And we miss that sometimes the things that happen to us, the evil that's happening to us or in this world, is because of spiritual evil. We are spiritual creation. So we have to live daily. This is so crucial. 
We have to live daily with the reality of the seeing world, the world that we see, you know, taste, feel, touch, hear, smell, but also the unseen world, the spiritual realm, the realm where the angels are, the, the demons are, where Satan is. It's happening all around us. We have to live in between those two worlds. I love how one said this, Michael Heiser, probably one of the foremost thoughts on this theological category. He says, seeing the Bible through the eyes of ancient readers requires us to shed the filters of our traditions and presumptions. They, in the ancients, processed life in supernatural terms. They, they saw life as both physical and spiritual. But today we process it by a mixture of creedal statements or doctrinal statements and modern rationale. Again, we, we see this world through one lens, the physical, and we need to, again, be opened up to both the physical and the spiritual. And this is what Jesus is saying, pointing out where this lady has been affected. We see in Luke throughout as being going throughout, we've seen people be spiritually demon possessed, right? And we see Jesus since Luke chapter four, and when he started his ministry, he starts casting out demons. Now, spiritual demon possession can only happen to a non-believer, someone that doesn't know Jesus. A Christian can never be spiritually possessed. The, the Probably the greatest example, or the one we're most familiar with, is, comes in Luke chapter 8 with the, the man of the Gerasenes that was controlled by legions, right? A thousand demons, and Jesus met him and spoke to him and cast out all those demons into the pigs. So demon possession is a very real reality. And here's what you need to know if you do not know Jesus, if you're not a Christian this morning. We're glad you're here. But know your life is opened up to this kind of attack because you don't have Jesus and the Spirit of God dwelling in you, protecting you from this kind of attack. So today we would plead with you to come and bend your knee to King Jesus and be free from this kind of possibility. So what we see, this woman doesn't seem to be possessed, but she seems to be spiritually oppressed. Now, this can happen to a Christian. Uh, we, we see this happen throughout the Scripture. We say that she's probably oppressed because we don't see Jesus casting out a demon in her. And Luke makes no mention to him casting out a demon. Her disability, again, was not caused by her sin, but by some satanic power that is able to use the natural physical forces to oppress her. Now again, just to be clear, I want to hear you hear me say this. Not every spiritual, not every physical disability has a demon behind it, right? I believe primarily, majority of the times when we see that or come in contact with that, it's just the effects of a Genesis 3 world on our bodies. But that doesn't negate the possibility of that being the case, as Jesus brought up here. Some examples throughout Scripture, we can automatically think of Job would be an example of this. You can also think about the Apostle Paul. Remember the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, 7? He was spiritually oppressed. Here's Paul. He wrote three quarters of the New Testament. He's one of the greatest Christians to ever walk this planet, and yet he was oppressed. It says this in 2 Corinthians 12, 7. Listen to the reason why he had this thorn in his flesh. So to keep me from becoming conceited, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given to me in the flesh. What is that thorn? He gives us the answer. A messenger. In the original language, it's angelos. It's angel. 
a messenger of Satan. So a demon was around Paul to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Here's just another reason why you and I should walk in humility and not in pride. Because we don't want the Lord Jesus sending a, you know, a demon to be a thorn in our flesh, right? To oppress us, to keep us humble. Amen? So this woman was spiritually oppressed. And notice we see how Jesus now shows her the compassion of the kingdom of God and the power of Him. And notice the three words. Look at verse 12. It said, when Jesus saw her, He called her. He called her over and said to her, woman, you are freed from your disability. And then He laid His hands on her. And immediately she was made straight. I mean, again, Jesus is teaching. He's in the middle of a sermon. It's like a woman walking in right now. He sees her first and foremost. He didn't ignore her. He didn't neglect her. He saw her. He, he focused his whole attention on her. And then he called her. It's like, whoa, Jesus, why don't you just go to her? Why don't you step down and you put him go to her? She's, you see, she's, she's humped over because this call is it's not a general call. It's an effectual call. In the Scriptures, when Jesus calls you, it produces something in you. And what it produces is faith. And so in Jesus calling this woman, He was producing faith in her that she would walk up to Jesus. She would believe in His calling, and then He touched her to show that when He healed her, that where this power came from. It didn't come from something outside. It came from Him. So He saw her. Called her and he touched her. And it says immediately she stood up straight. Just think about that. She was hunched over for 18 years, could barely move in chronic pain. Jesus sees her, he calls her, he touches her. And by the way, rabbis didn't touch other women back then. That was like a no no. But Jesus writes a different cultural norms, right? He touched her. And when she rises up, the first thing she sees is Jesus. Face to face. Eyeball to eyeball. Whew, I'm getting goosebumps just thinking about it right now. It's an incredible scene. Again, this is just another example of the kingdom of God breaking into a Genesis 3 world. Breaking into and showing the compassion of a good king. And remember, Luke is writing this to his friend Theophilus. Like, I'm writing these things so you believe that this is true. Theophilus could have went and found this woman and asked her about this event. And she could have verified that it is true. This is what truly happened. And this is why Jesus came. In Luke chapter 4, verse 18, Jesus has come to send to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of the sight to the blind. And here, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. That's why Jesus came. To do this very thing, to show the power and the compassion of this king. Now, we are called to be ambassadors. We are called to this kind of compassion. Now, how many of us in here have seen some miraculous healings? Go ahead and raise your hand. You've prayed for some. You've seen them happen. I have. A handful. I've seen cancer prayed for, disappear. 
seeing tumors disappear. I, I have yet to see like a disability like this happen, like a blind sea or something like that. But I, I've talked to people that have seen that in reality. That's a reality. And that does still happen today. But I want us to know the first thing that happens where Jesus always begins in meeting someone who's suffering, where we can always begin as well. And that begins with us seeing the person struggling, the person suffering. The first thing that Jesus does and that we do is we can see that when Jesus comes into contact with a lot of people that are suffering, the author usually adds this little but profound detail. And Jesus solve them. That's typically how it starts out before he's about to do something amazing. Jesus saw her. Jesus saw him. And then he acts. And that's where we can begin. We are surrounded by people who are suffering. And sometimes people in particular with chronic pain can become invisible, can become isolated, right? Can become unknown. And it's up to you and to me to see them, to acknowledge them, and to engage them. We, we've all probably been to a sporting event where, you know, there's a low in the game, there's a timeout or something's going on, and then all of a sudden on the jumbotron, the big screen, you know, the camera's focusing on people in the stands, right? And typically, what do you see? You see, typically you see people that are, they, they try to find people that are bored out of their mind, right? They're almost falling asleep, Right? And you see them, and they're up there, and they're falling asleep, and someone kind of nudges them, and it's like points, and they look, and they're on the jumbo tram, and what happens? Do they stay, like, docile? No, what happens? They start jumping up and start dancing like MC Hammer, right? You know what I'm saying? They just start jumping up and acting crazy. Why? Because they're being seen. They're being seen. Everyone wants to be on the jumbotron. Everyone wants to be on the big screen because everyone wants to be seen. There's a power behind being acknowledged, especially someone with chronic pain. When, when someone is suffering with chronic pain and they feel seen, what happens to them? They, they feel validated. Uh, they feel loved on. They feel like they're not a burden, but they are actually a blessing. They're not a hindrance to somebody. And it can really energize them to then fight whatever disease or ailment they are dealing with. It can motivate them to get through the difficulty. This is the power of being seen. This is the power that you and I hold to those who are suffering. First and foremost, like Jesus, they need to be seen. So I want you to pause and think about those in your circles of influence. Those who have isolated those who maybe seem invisible. Who do you need to see in your life? Who's the Lord put in your life to acknowledge that here's an image bearer of God that's suffering and He has put you in their path to be a blessing, to see them, to acknowledge them, and then to engage them. And it says, after Jesus does that and heals her, she glorifies God. If that's not the understatement of all the Bible, I don't know what is. She glorifies God. What do you think that looked like? You think she was just quiet and be like, hey, thank you, Jesus? Oh, man, she probably jumped up, did some jumping jacks. I don't know, ran around the room. 
was praising the Lord. But here's the thing with this story. This is a great story about a a woman in history 2,000 years ago plus that was healed by Jesus, but it's pointing to your healing and my healing. To a greater healing. This woman with her incurable, crippled condition is a picture of you and me apart from Christ. And just as Jesus brought her complete healing physically and spiritually, Jesus has brought you and I to complete healing physically and spiritually because of His life, death, and resurrection. Those of us who have repented in Christ and trusted in Him can receive this healing physically and spiritually, which then propels us to every day we walk out of those doors, don't live for our little kingdom, but live for the kingdom of God. And every day, your life and my life should be a day of worshiping and glorifying the Lord through our words and actions. Amen? Well, secondly, we see the critics of the kingdom of God. Look at Luke 13, 14 through 17. And the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, no, said to the people and not to Jesus. This guy's passive aggressive. He says to the people, not to Jesus. There are six days in which you ought to do work. I want you to just stop and think about that. Can you imagine seeing this miracle? You're there that day. You see Jesus heal this woman. And your response is anger? Your response is you blow a gasket because your friend who's been struggling for 18 years, who can barely walk, has chronic pain, is all of a sudden he here and you get mad about that? It's incredible. But, but this is what religion does to people. This is what bad religion does to people. You can define religion and the religious people as this, people who add their preferences to God's law. When you add your preferences to God's law, it distorts it. It defiles it. And the outcome of this ruler's religion, it was as crooked as this woman's back. That's what religion does. We know that in the Old Covenant, the commandment to keep the Sabbath is a good commandment. It's on the Ten Commandments is a good commandment. And we are called to keep that. He was correct about saying, hey, work six days and the seventh day, take off. That's a good, that's guys, he's quoting it, that's right. But again, this religious leader added something to it. The thing that he added to it was like there's no healing on the Sabbath, which is not in Scripture. And him trying to obey the Sabbath, he added something onto it which destroyed the Sabbath and those around him. We always use the illustration of a fence. God's a good father. And he sets up a fence around the playground in which me and you, his sons and daughters, can run and play and do whatever we want to do within the confines of his commands. His commands are good. They're there for life. They're for us to enjoy, for us to be free. But what happens is a religious person comes and sees that commandment and says, oh, that's good. But we don't want to jump the fence, so we're going to add on to that fence. We're going to build it a little bit higher just to make sure no one can jump over it. And then another religious, someone even more religious, comes along and says, hey, well, that's good. But even so that someone can't climb that fence, this is what we're going to do. We're going to build another fence around this command. We're going to make it three times as tall. We're going to put some barbed wire on it. So that way we know no one breaks God's command. And I love how one says it. He says, before long, you don't have a yard to play in. You have a prison. 
and no one's having fun in a prison. That's what religious people do. That's what hypocrites do is they add on to God's good and holy word. Jesus will have none of it. We see Jesus crushes the critic. Look at verse 15. He says, then the Lord. Now this word Lord, he doesn't say then Jesus. He says the Lord. Luke is using Jesus' post-resurrected name. He's using his kingdom name, his lordship title. The Lord answered him and said, you hypocrite. Hypocrites, plural, not just to this man, but to all those that had this same kind of thinking. He says, does not each one of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water? And ought not this woman, circle those words, and ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has bound, has tied up for 18 years, be loose, be untied from this bond on the Sabbath day? Jesus is using a play on words here. He says, you untie your animals and you take them to water. You give them freedom. You nourish them on the Sabbath day. But here's a woman bound by Satan. And you say, that's not good if we untie our leader to freedom. Your religion leads you to treat your animals better than image bearers of God. Has much changed today in the world? Do we not see people treating animals better than human beings? We see all kinds of groups and all kinds of millions and millions of dollars of people wanting to save the animals, save the owls in Oregon. Hey, I'm all for saving owls in Oregon. But not at the expense of hurting people. Those same people that pour millions of dollars into those animal organizations also pour millions of dollars into Planned Parenthood. You see their hypocrisy. They humanize animals and they dehumanize little babies in the womb. This is what happens when we put our preferences and our ways above God's ways. Now, I want to say this. I always have to say this when we talk about Planned Parenthood or abortion. If you had one, we are glad you're here. And the power and the compassion of the Lord is for you. And, and, and if you're struggling with that weight of guilt, please come see me. We have some ladies here in the crossing that would love to talk to you and love to share with you about God's grace and forgiveness. Close up. Caveat. Again, care for the animals better than humans. And here's the point Jesus is saying. If there's ever a time for the power of God to be on display, isn't it on the Sabbath? I mean, what was the Sabbath for? Six days we shall work. What's the Sabbath for? The seventh day is for us to rest. Rest in what? In God's ability to provide every need that we have. That our dependence would be on Him. That's how we're not working. We're dependent on God. So if there's any time for the Lord to heal, it's on the Sabbath. In, in the same account with Mark, Jesus was questioned, like, why are you performing all this kingdom work and kingdom power and and kingdom compassion on the Sabbath, Jesus. And he answers this in Mark chapter 3. Is it not lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save a life or to kill? It's to do good. The answer is 100%. Yes, it's to do good. It's to save life. That's what the power of God does. That's what the compassion and love of God does. It, it saves people. It heals people. It frees people. And if any day you should do it, it should be done on the Sabbath. This 
I just love how the Spirit of God works on Friday. Matt kind of talked about this idea of resting in God. And this was a quote that he had. And I wrote it down because I was like, this is perfect. His quote is this. Is it not lawful to live in the abundant life of God on the Sabbath? 100% it is. 100% it is. Let me just quickly give you some signs of religious hypocrisy. Not only for the people out there, but this is also something that we got to continuously battle because it's our natural bent to want to to wanna be God, to be little gods and tell people how to live out. Let me give you three kind of categories to see if you might be walking in religious hypocrisy. One, you don't give grace to others. You'll accept all the grace from God like, give me more grace. Give me more grace. But when it comes to you extending grace to someone else, nope. Kind of goes along with forgiveness. You're never wrong. Everyone else is always wrong. You never ask for forgiveness. That might be a sign you could be walking in hypocrisy. How about this one? You want all people to live just like you'd live because you're the standard. If everyone just lived like you lived, this world would be a better place. You might be a religious hypocrite if that's your heart. Or how about this one? You focus on duty first and not on Jesus first. Your, your mantra in your mind first is do, do, do rather than done, done, done. I must do. You first and foremost focus on yourself and what you are to do rather than focusing first on what Jesus has done, which then allows you to walk and do what Jesus has called you to do. Those are some signs. Well, we see in verse 17, as he, see, as he said these things, all of his adversaries were put to shame, and the people rejoiced at the glorious things that were done by him. You see, religious, religiosity, religion, hypocrisy leads people away from Jesus. This would be the last time that Jesus would preach in a synagogue because of the hostility between Jesus and the Pharisees. It leads people away from Jesus. But grace, forgiveness, the power of God, the power of compassion in the kingdom of God leads people to Jesus. And those who believe in King Jesus and His kingdom, they rejoice. They are people of joy. They are people that you want to be around because they know they have been forgiven much. And so that leads us to our third and final point, the consummation of the kingdom of God. We'll go through this quickly. Luke 13, 18 through 20. He said, therefore, so there's a connection to Jesus. He, he, he goes back to teaching. Jesus goes back to teaching the people of the synagogue after his power is displayed. He says, therefore, what is the kingdom of God light and, and what to, shall I compare it? It's like the grain of a mustard seed. A mustard seed back then was one of the smallest grains. It's about a one to two millimeters, the size of a pinhead that the people would plant. And a man took it and sowed in his garden and it grew and became or potential became a tree. It has a potential of growing to about 15 feet. And then the birds of the air would come and make their nests in it. And then verse 20. And again, he said, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? Is it like leaven that a woman took? and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. And notice here, Jesus is a massive teacher. The first parable is to the men. The second one is to the women. He's, he's hitting the, everyone in his congregational with a spiritual truth. And they both have the same meaning. 
And these have become some of my favorite parables over the years. The reason why is because these parables tell me and encourage me that I can't mess up the kingdom of God. That the kingdom of God is not relying on my ability and my power to grow and to progress. But the main point of these two parables is this. That the progress, the growth of the kingdom of God, again, doesn't depend on my ability or your ability. It depends on the power of God. That's what's highlighted in these parables. That's what connects these parables to what just happened with the woman of the well. It's the power of King Jesus and its ability to move, to heal, to grow, to produce, to save. In these parables, there's been a lot of secondary meanings written about in these parables, and those are good. The mustard seed and the leaven, and these, these small, insignificant things that, that grow and become significant. That's just part of it. But the main point of these parables is the power of the mustard seed. The power of the lemon. The lemon. The leaven. It's the power pointing back to King Jesus. I said that it's not up to you and me to build this kingdom. We can't mess it up. But here's the good news. Jesus still uses us to be ambassadors in His kingdom. And He empowers us Listen to what it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26. For consider your calling, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose, or you might say, but God called you what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, redemption. So that is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. This is the power of God working through you and me. That He can use broken vessels unwise, not popular, not powerful, and yet He can use us as the most insignificant things to change the world upside down for His glory. It's because of His power behind us. And one day, when Jesus comes back, now we'll see this power revealed in its fullness, but we will experience it. Let me close with this. What is the biggest crowd you've ever been a part of? Could be a sporting event, could be a concert. What is the biggest crowd that you have ever been a part of? I want you to think about that. For me, it was a crowd of about 80,000, 85,000, and I'm, and I'm on the field, and it's just overwhelming. The noise, the sights, the sounds, you'd be surrounded by that many people. <coughs> well, Revelation 7-9 gives us a picture, an experience that one day we will all experience, and it says this. He says, after this, I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all the tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. This hasn't happened yet. Revelation is a book about in the future. But the, the great 
multitude that he's talking about? He's talking about you. He's talking about me. We're in that great multitude. And the reason why we're in that great multitude is because of the power of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Because He did step out in humility, became a human. He did live the perfect life in your place and my place. He did die on the cross that you and I should have died. He was buried. And He was resurrected with resurrected power. Now He rules and reigns. So Revelation 7-9 happens because of Jesus' power. And we're a part of that. So don't miss this reality as you walk out those doors. That that power that created the mountains, that created the sun, that created the universe, that created you, is your king. And you are part of his kingdom. And you have a mission to reach others with that great news of the gospel. So let us go out as ambassadors empowered by the compassion and love and mercy and grace of our great King. Amen. Father, thank you for this message, Lord. It's a message that we all need to hear and, 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 and just recalibrate and think through and set our lives back on this reality of the power, the grace, the love, the mercy of King Jesus. And Lord, help us think that we are citizens first of another kingdom, the heavenly kingdom, which then informs us how to live in this earthly realm. And if there's anyone in here who's suffering from chronic pain, Lord, I pray that this body, we, we, we see you and we want to engage you and love on you. So Lord, come see me or one of the pastors. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.